Zach Dingy, Tom Capilati, where we share business tips, interview experts, and travel the world. This week on Two Dudes, Three Legs. Oh, you fuckers want to be famous. <laughs> Welcome back to the Two Dudes Three Legs podcast with your host Zach Dingy, Tony Capaletti. Today we're sitting with Ian Bick. He was a nightclub owner at 18 and a federal inmate by 21. We're gonna find out how, what, why, and everything about it. So Tony, go ahead. So we know a little bit of your story, right? You're arrested by the FBI, indicted on 15 charges by the age of 19, right? You do you go to jail for three years. You're back out, not jail, federal prison. You come back out. How has it been adjusting to life as an entrepreneur? Because you're not giving that up. You didn't even give it up when you were locked up, which is fucking impressive. <laughs> um, but how has it been adjusting to life coming back out? Um, it was really interesting because like once I got out of prison, I was very gun ho about getting back into like that field that got me into prison. So I was like, <laughs> first day out, I do like this news article like, so I was supposed to go right to the halfway house right when I got out of prison. And instead I go to my parents' house and I set up an interview with the news times and there I'm going <laughs> talking about how I'm opening up a new nightclub and all the shit, which I wasn't really thinking about at the time, but they could have technically sent me back to prison to finish my sentence. Just for that. Just for that. Because I like deviated from the course. Um, but they decided not to go that route. <laughs> no, oh Wait, so you said finish your sentence. Sorry. So it but... would have been like four. I had four months left of my sentence. Oh, okay. And they um, let you out. But they let you out for into the halfway house to like reintegrate into society. Um, for good behavior or because you made the best cheesecakes in town? <laughs> so in the federal prison system, you get good time um, per each year. You get like 40 days for every year, you, something like that for every year you serve. Mm. So my full three-year term would have been October of 2019 with good time. That was May of 2019. I got out in January of 2019. Um, so that was the halfway house time. So say they decided to violate me, I would have had to stay back into the federal prison camp until May. So wait, what did you do then? You went to, where did you go the day you got out? So go with day that again? I go out, I fly into New Haven and then my parent or my dad picks me up and we go to uh, my house and I do an interview with the news times to like market that I'm back and getting back into the nightclub Daddy's business. Back. <laughs> yeah. All this stuff, take some photos. And I, the dumbest thing I could have ever done was I didn't take my prison clothes off. I had like the gray jumpsuit still on. Um, I was oh just like so determined God. to like show off my new physical look. Cause I, what I came out like a lot fitter than what I went into. Mm -hmm. And so I did the interview and they see it and they like what the next day at the halfway house, they like bring a copy of the newspaper to me and they're like, do you see this? And I'm sitting there trying to say, well, you know, that was from years ago. They're like, this is the same outfit you came out of the prison <laughs> with. Um, Bro, Yo, what? That's crazy. Balls so they, they let it slide. Um, but yeah, I had like this mentality of wanting to get back into it. And things were so different. Like the world was so different when you leave, you know, almost three years prior and then you come back. It's a whole different spot. Like the biggest change for me was smart TVs. That was not a thing before I went into prison. So I'm fiddling around with it when I went on like home confinement. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Because we didn't have like a smart TV before. It was like the, um, what is it? The Amazon drive thing or whatever. The fire stick. The fire yeah. stick. Yeah. 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 Now we had that. The TV. Yep. And TV prices were like ridiculously cheaper. So that was like weird. And then um, just even like getting back into like dating and stuff. 
um i never used like tinder or anything like before prison so being on that was super weird and then also having like kind of like a known persona in danbury so that was like another interesting factor about it too yeah when people ask you when they're like like you go on a date or you go, you're hanging out with buddies, new new friends you meet, and you're like, uh, so what have you been doing the last couple of years of your life? Like, what? Tell me your story or whatever. Do you say like instantly, yeah, I went to jail, or do you kind of hide it a little bit until you get to talk a little bit more? I mean, honestly, everyone like I meet in town or even Connecticut, uh-huh. um, just they know they know of me or they know the story, and even girls that don't know me, they go to Google me, and the first they're so fascinated with the prison thing. They don't care about anything else, like what the crime was. It's never about the crime. It's never about anything. It's what was prison like? That's question one. And two, did you have sex with anyone in prison? Oh like they, do you get more women because you went to prison, you think? It's got to be. Do they like love it like in a boost. good way? They I like think it? they like the bad boy aspect yeah. of it. But yeah. there's also a, like for every girl that's interested, there's also a girl that's not. Like right. it's it. there's a lot of hesitancy. Two sides like, of the with sword. That. Yeah. Always, right. Always. Right. So I think it's like it's definitely difficult for some people to grasp that. Um, especially like I'm not the type that you bring home to the parents and say, Hey, mom and dad, this guy went to prison, but I like him. Like it, it's just like a complicated scenario. Yeah. How many tattoos did you get in prison? Cause you didn't have any of those before. Did you get them when you got out or I, inside prison? I didn't get any tattoos in prison. No. I almost oh, I did it. So. Um, only because like they use real ink and everything there, but yeah. I was just thrown off by like the whole needle aspect. Yeah. Um, but they do it really legit. Like they get the ink smuggled in from over the walls. So it's like a, it's a nice can of ink. And, um, but the gun itself, the tattoo gun is like made with like random parts and rubber bands. And Fuck. It looks what? really, it looks really good. They can smuggle shit. Motherfuckers like, are innovators I, I in I see jail. like these videos online of these guys taking pictures and shit while they're in jail. I saw a picture of you while you were in jail. <laughs> Who yeah. the fuck took that picture? Who's got the camera phone in there? So that we were on like Snapchat and we were doing lives. Like that's a big thing. If you go on TikTok, like prison talk, you see all these videos yeah. of guys. Bro. But the funniest thing is they'll post one video and you don't hear from them again because they get caught after that. Oh my yeah. God. Uh, Stupid. Yeah. I saw videos on TikTok of guys like cooking and throwing the food down and partying. But that was like our thing. We would do like lives and Snapchat. I had like a really big Snapchat platform at that point. Um, with the old tuxedo junction like handle for snapchat so i was getting like thousands of views uh, that's crazy because people know your story and they're like holy shit we can follow up and watch what's going on with it exactly and did that give you the idea to like you know you're you're in prison and you're thinking what am i going to do when i get out of here you that probably gave you the idea to okay people want to hear more about this story i want to monetize this is that what gave you the idea to like you know come out and share your story I think what gave me the idea was I read uh, Jordan Belfort's books and that kind of like inspired me. Like I studied like the Wolf of Wall Street. He had like three books and I read them all. I read another one of them twice and that like just got me thinking like I started working on a book in prison and I'm like, okay, I have something like really interesting here. This is how what I can use to get back to even make things right, pay everyone back. And then I started reading a bunch of memoirs. Like I read all these celebrity memoirs, as many as I could find. And whatever wasn't in the library, my parents would send me in books. Um, And I would just like kind of like understand their writing style and and these just different stories. And that like fascinated me that like you could actually monetize someone's story because I had no idea that that was like a thing before. So that's what sparked it was the reading in prison. Exactly. I I would definitely say the reading. And so that begs the question, you're obviously writing a book. Um, I, so I was writing a book, um, in prison and I wrote like three or four chapters and then I was like emailing a lot of agents and stuff when I got out. That's what I was focusing on like that first year. And 
probably emailed like 200 agents, heard back from a few. And a lot of the feedback was like, I wasn't relevant. So like my situation had happened years, years mm. earlier. So like there was a Vice article years earlier in 2015. This was 2019 now. So no one was interested. Yeah. Um, so that kind of like put things on the back burner. And then ever since then, like I became a little bit more relevant, like with the HBO doc and the Vice doc and now um, my TikTok and everything. Um, so maybe eventually a, a book, but the way I look at it now, TikTok and social media is my book. And then yeah. that's what I use to convert into a TV show or a movie. Whereas I don't necessarily know if I need to go write a book right now. And I think the engagement right now, like a 27 year old person, someone that's my age, I think gets more entertainment out of my personality on TikTok than going to sit and write a book that may or may not be written by me and can't really understand my personality. Right. It's the same play Jordan Belfort did. He made the movie and then it, now he is like, he. I mean, now he's he made a lot of money doing his business, but he wasn't popping until he made the movie. And now because of the movie and because of uh, um, Leonardo DiCaprio, now he's like the guy. Right. And then he started selling books and monetizing the podcast and everything. But I had no idea play. who he was like before. I don't think anyone in like my age group did uh, until that movie came out in 2013. No one had any idea. You ready for this? Yeah. Our sales director <laughs> yeah. grew up selling door-to-door with Jordan Belfort. Really? If you go back and listen to some of his podcasts, I don't know exactly which one it was, but they talk about how they used to go to Jones Beach and sell ice creams, and they I talk about how he book, used to yep. sell seafood yep. at the back of his truck. My truck. sales director worked at that same company and sold seafood at the back of the truck together with Jordan Belfort at like 18, 19. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you a funny story. Jordan Belfort has always been a hardcore salesman. Jordan Belfort, the, the, I'm not going to say my sales director's name, but my sales director, Jordan Belfort went and took the guy's truck, my sales director, went out to all his customers, did his route, and was like, hey guys, XYZ, he died, so I'm just trying to sell his truck and get money for the funeral. And he literally sold his entire truck yeah. and then went back, and my sales director, he... Jordan thought it was funny. My sales director didn't think it was funny, and they be, it was a whole issue. Yeah, because the way he literally, found out, he showed up at this lady's house who he yeah. was selling meat to, and she's like, oh, my God, it's you. I thought you <laughs> were <you're> dead. <laughs> it's like, that what? Wild. Yo, Belfort's a real wolf, bro. Yeah. Yo, he's OD. But also, to, to touch back on you writing your story, I feel like your story is going to get really good when you hit that level of success that I believe you're going to hit because – you're driven in a different way, bro. Like watching your TikToks and stuff and hearing about you hustling in prison. Like there's, you got something in you that's never going to die. So I think you're right. The story isn't there yet, but I think it will be when you hit that level of success you're looking for. Cause then it's going to be like, you know, they're saying you're not relevant right now. Well, what will bring you relevance again is your validity when you make that money that, that I know you're going to, cause you're sick with something like you're sick as an entrepreneur, bro. Ian, you let got me some ask balls you. on you. So in high school, obviously, you started the business. Who were you in middle school? Like, what kind of kid were you? Were you always an entrepreneur hustling shit in middle school? Or were you were you an athlete? Were you just a regular kid in middle school? So this is actually, like, the interesting part of the story because this is what, like, sets up everything that happens in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, in middle school, like, I was not popular whatsoever. Um, I had just came back from private school. I went to private school and elementary school because I was bullied for being, like, the chubby, nerdy-looking kid. And then I got to middle school, um, came back for seventh and eighth grade so I can kind of like integrate back into like the social crowd before high school. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know where like I fit in. Everyone was in like the Hollister, Abercrombie era or the like the skater era. And so my body type was not the Hollister type. 
So I fit in with the skaters, but I couldn't skate for shit. And <laughs> I walked around with a skateboard in my hand that I did not know how to ride. Um, sometimes yeah. I would wear Heelys, like remember the roller skater oh, I thing? I had a pair of those. And I had bleached blonde like highlights in my hair because I thought that would look cool. At long hair, and I looked like a chipmunk or a squirrel. <laughs> and um, I would wear these baggy clothes and... I was just trying to fit in. At one point, I sold weed for a little bit just to like be cool. I hung out with like the shady group of kids, and um, that kind of like determined me to get popular in high school. So like the summer going into eighth grade, into ninth grade, I lost the weight, um, went more preppy for like a preppy look. I was wearing like Ralph Lauren polo shirts, stuff like that in high school, and then I really spent a lot of time trying to integrate with like the upperclassmen. Because I realized, like, if I can integrate with the upperclassmen, that's when I'll gain, like, the popularity and, and start to become, like, known. And that, I think, that desire to want to be popular is what, like, fueled me chasing, like, the success with the concerts and always, like, wanting to get bigger and bigger. And that was, like, ultimately the downfall, too. Right, because the, the spark of it all was, what was it? Like, there was a dance, and the dance was whack or whatever. So you wanted to put on your own show, your own event right yeah so i started um raising money for a homeless shelter that turned into selling bracelets and then from there i did a dance with it and the night of the dance i realized okay if i can get kids to pay x amount of dollars um i can make some money and at, at this point in time i'm throwing these massive house parties at my house two to three hundred kids every single weekend um sounds i was like project wait, you, you were sounds doing like that before the dance even happened so yeah, we were, we were doing project x at my house every yeah, weekend <laughs> my parents were upstairs like thanks the for whole the invite time. dude yeah it was it was crazy and we live on a lake so like people were taking out the boats and like we oh, had a trampoline shit. in the yard we had a fire pit we set up like a bar down and on at the this patio age, you're, you're, how old are you i'm 15 this is 15. when it first started my first party was new year's of um soft beginning of sophomore year um and i was 15 and like, I just got hooked and it all has to do with like me wanting popularity. Cause right. it's like a drug, right? Every party. Say that. Yeah. Every party, every Facebook invite I sent out. Cause that was the big thing to promote back then. Yeah. Um, everyone hitting me up. And for me, it was never about the party itself. I hated the parties. I wasn't a drinker. I didn't smoke. It was the buildup up until the event. And the second the party's over, you lose that buildup. No one's hitting you up. So therefore you need to have the next one in place chasing the dragon to chase that. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I was doing. It, it went yeah. from an insecurity mm -hmm. and then you basically made it, made, you literally made it your own drug, which ended up being your own demise. I mean, I think yeah. we've all yeah. been in that so position. Pretty, yeah. I've, I threw house parties cause I remember that. That shit is, is it's fucking addicting. I mean, even now, like look at influencers and stuff like with the TikTok and stuff you have to, like I was doing an interview last week and the guy was like, well, you're still kind of like the same person you were back then because you're still chasing popularity only this time you're using that to like build, build a, a platform, platform yeah. and to do something good with it yeah so it's always going to be there like the people that look for attention like that's always going to be a thing it's yeah. just how you turn that into something good well now you'll be rewarded duly for it <laughs> i mean we're all addiction-based human beings though yeah if, someone, if you're not chasing business or attention then they're they're addicted to watching netflix or they're addicted to their phone or they're addicted to something so there's nothing wrong with being addicted to trying to get attention if you're going to do something good with it. Yeah, you know? right. If you use your platform that's how, for a that's good what human cause. beings are. Right. That's what human beings biologically connect to things like that, you know? Right. We all have addictions. All right, so in prison, we talked about it before, but you were obviously, you've been a businessman since you were young. You're telling me you're putting on parties and shit. Were you charging people at 15? 
So for the house parties, we just charge for red solo cups to drink for the night, just so we can make our money back. We made a little bit of money. Uh, It wasn't much, but we'd have like upperclassmen with the fake IDs buy the liquor and we would sell the solo cups. And that was like our hustle. But I was working like a full time job at that point. So and all my other friends weren't working. So I like I always had money and I was just I was buying like the food or or anything like that. Don't try this at home, kids. (laughs) Yeah, definitely don't try this at home. (laughs) What was... What was the biggest business lesson you learned in prison? In prison? Um, I mean, I think it's just you have to be... There's a couple things. One, you have to know who you're getting into business with. Mm -hmm. Um, That's definitely a big takeaway from prison because there's guys... Like, in one point, I got myself in, like, a shady situation because this guy's, like... um, And I've actually never told this story before. But this guy comes to me and he's like, hey, do you want to make some money? Um, It's perfectly legit no problems, nothing. And at that point I'm in prison bored and kind of like want some adrenaline to like make some money. And next thing I know, like these fucking drugs are getting shipped to my parents' house, uh, like uh, these pills or something like that to try to get smuggled in the prison. And when my dad tells me this, I'm like, fucking send that shit back, return to sender. And so he does that. And then next thing I know, this guy's coming to me like, yo, dude didn't get the stuff back. Like all this crazy shit he says it's perfectly legit yeah i'm like bro i did not sign up for this like they didn't even tell you what the plan was nothing no plan and thank god like this guy ended up getting like caught with a phone so he went to the shoe like i don't even know what the repercussions would have been but it was just like so sketchy and like that's like it's like you got to do your research you got to know who you're getting into business with Mm -hmm. um that and just like straightforward honesty which is like something i struggled with like before prison because i was never really honest right because i wanted to be popular and stuff i didn't want to like show that my business failed or anything like that right in prison it's like it's very honest like if you're caught in one lie it's like your life is pretty much on the line you don't want to lie about anything and 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 the people who hold you accountable are the other cellmates you're saying pretty much or anyone you're like in business with it's like a college campus pretty much these lows um there's no like cells it's 12 man rooms at the fort dix prison i was at a low security prison so picture like you're in a big unit and there's like 10 different units each unit has about 400 inmates it's uh three floors and there's these 12 man rooms and on each floor and it's like an old army barracks and the doors just open up and you can go in there into people's rooms. You move around. It's like, it's like this college experience. And in the bathroom, you have guys making hooch and, and whiskey and How everything. How do you get caught? I don't get that. It's one, one um, officer per each unit. And you and would have a lookout. As he doesn't da- come yep, in your You would have a lookout downstairs. So he's required to walk like every hour or whatever. Some cops are assholes, but other cops don't let you live let you live so you would have a lookout downstairs and there's two staircases on either side of the building so if the cops walking this way all the guys with the phones are going down the other staircase uh just it's like a cat and mouse game and there's windows like facing the prison yard so if they're going to raid the place because sometimes they'll do raids and they'll send like 10 guards in at a time you could see what's going on so you have plenty of time to stash everything Okay. Um, but it wasn't it's, a very well-run prison. What the hell? No, it's a, it's it's kind of a joke, like the low security prisons. But you got yeah. guys in one room doing the gambling. You got another guy, you know, the playing cards or whatever. And, and then, this is federal lockup, though. So yeah. are you in fear for your life at some point? Like when you're in there, are you worried about someone coming up and shanking the fuck out of you, or like, or if you play the game right and you don't fuck with anybody, you're okay? Is, I think if you play the game right, you're okay. Like it's all like. 
I learned a lot of life skills and like people skills in prison because you have to read people and you got to kind of figure out who you could get away with stuff with and who you can't mm-hmm. and who you kind of got to like appease and, and go about it. Um, with me, like I have a the good personality where I can make friendly with certain people and they kind of like had my back. But there were like difficult situations where like guys wanted to beat the shit out of me because they didn't like a white guy moving around the way I did. Like I was trying to get involved with everything, but I was way out of my realm of what I should have been in. Right. You know, and that got me into like some really dicey situations because like I want to be a part of the gambling. I want to do the sports book. I want to like because I was just trying to make some money. Like I didn't need the money, but that like addiction in me to be involved in something got me into stuff that I didn't need to be a part of. I think your biggest factor that makes you so special at this is resourcefulness. I think you have ridiculous skills to just find whatever you need to find at the time. Like you're 17, 18 years old and you had a Wells Fargo account with investors that could have given you hundreds (laughs) of thousands of dollars. You go to jail and you're this white boy who is, who is a nobody. And then you go to jail and now you're, you're connected with these people that are, you're making money on it. Like, your ability to be resourceful was, I don't know if that's always been in you, but it seems like it. You know what I mean? That was, that's special to me. It Not a lot of people like can do that. You know? I think guy. it was also, it, it wasn't a good thing at the same time because like the more resourceful I got, the longer this went on. So like in times where like, say I owed an investor $120,000 and for me to be able to go to the casino and magically win this money, like to pay the person back, like, it should have just ended right there if yeah. I didn't win the money, but instead I win them. Like for instance, there was always another situation to get me bailed out of a previous one. Yeah. Right. So whether that was just because I was a lucky son of a bitch or my drive or whatever it was, but there was always something cause I kept looking for that door to, to close the other door. Right. But while, and you did, you know, from me watching your story, you found your way out of a lot of situations, but there had to be nights where you went to bed like 80 K in the hole. What was that like? How the fuck do you go to sleep? When you owe people so much, like I wouldn't be able to. I think towards the end, I couldn't really sleep at all. Like I was at my heaviest. I was like almost 300 pounds. I was eating fast food like every day. And it was like the weight of running the club, owing all this money, having dangerous figures or individuals like after me too. Like I was just trying to keep everything together. There was not a single point in the day where my phone would not ring. And, and I would put be a, stressed out of stress your mind. was really through the roof. Like I was in a bad mental state. I don't know like, how you still got really hair, bad. Dude. Were you, were you doing drugs at the time? Or how got, were you coping yeah. with this? I think I was just like, so I'm a very like motivational person. Okay. Whereas like I believed heavily in you have to fail to succeed. And like, that's what kept me going. Like I was like, okay, I did all this failure. Tuxedo Junction, the nightclub I was running was my second act. I'm going to make this work or I'm going to die trying. And I literally had to be removed by the police from the club with like what I got sent to jail. Otherwise, I'd still be running it up until probably like COVID happened. But so you're trusting the process is what that's what you have. You just have faith that it's shitty right now, but you're going to make it through. And that's what keeps me going today. Like I wake up and I think like, okay, I went through all this crazy shit. I survived it. And now I have this amazing story and it's like, it's ironic. Like the, I was chasing success for so long, trying to build this business. And the thing that's going to bring me that is the story itself of me chasing it. Right. Which is like super interesting about it. That is, that is very interesting. All right. So let's get into the business aspect of uh, tuxedo junction. It is when you run a nightclub, I always said, tell the uh, uh, people that talk to me about business. I always said there's one, 
one business I'd never get in. That's the restaurant industry. Same <laughs> nightclub, restaurant, same shit to me. Yep. It's a very cash heavy business, very slim margins, very difficult, very like nonstop. It's it's long hours, late nights. It's like basically everything you don't want. So why in the beginning? I know I know you did the event. Uh, um, uh, you you had the event for the hell was it the school? Yeah. And you did the dance. Yep. Why the nightclub industry? Like why not why not just holding events or or doing something else? Why'd you want to own a nightclub? So I think a lot of it was just like luck. One day, what happened was I was I was doing the teen nights at this club Tuxedo Junction, which was like a famous rock club in Connecticut mm-hmm. and in Danbury. And, um, when that eventually died out, that's when I moved to the bigger concerts and I raised the money and lose the money. And that's what got me into the trouble. And then one day I see like a news article in the paper saying, um, tuxedo junction was for sale and it was going out of business. And I was still friendly with the owner at the time. So I call him up. I was in Vegas on like a family trip and I see this article and he said, listen, like we're closing the doors, but if you come up with this amount of money, which was like $20,000 to, to do the liquor license and um, some past bills and stuff, I could essentially own a nightclub with him. Uh, and he would stay on board as like an advisor and we would try it for six months. And so in my eye, mind, I'm 18 years old. I had success in that club before, and this was just like the front room aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and why not? Like what kid right. wouldn't want to own a nightclub? The problem was that I was like thinking way too big and I dump a hundred thousand dollars into like renovating the front room of this. So it was like a hundred and twenty thousand dollar investment in an area that like is pretty shitty and also all these contractors were taking advantage of me. And that was the hundred twenty grand wasn't your money. That was investor money, yeah. So right from the jump you went in the hole a hundred grand. Yep. On this nightclub, yeah. And, and looking back, did you even need to do those renovations? Like, no, not really. What? So, what I look back on now, knowing everything I know now, had I taken that investor money and put it into the idea of Tuxedo Junction with the whole entire building and doing the EDM acts that I was able to do, we wouldn't be here right now. I'd be like a success story, and the club would be great, and I probably would have ended up selling the club for hundreds of thousands of dollars everything would have been good because that business model itself that I did years later was super successful. I could just never get ahead because of all the past debt. Shit. Wow. So that's what that's happened. That's big with that. right yeah. there. That's, that's huge because the sequencing of what you're saying right there, mm-hmm. like literally your first move you made in the nightclub, the debt you went into to redo the room, which you should have never done. If you didn't do that move, you just told, you just said you'd basically be a success, mm-hmm. but because you did that move, Yep, that's it. That was everything. I should have just took over the back room, like the whole space, but I didn't. So that folds six months later, uh-huh. and then by that point, that's when I'm like 1.2 million in the hole with the interest, Holy because there was like all this inflated interest on all mm-hmm. the loans. Investigation starts, and that's when I get the idea to go back to what I initially started in the big room, Tuxedo Junction, and that's when I, I reopen it and, and start from scratch. Only this time with the FBI after me and $1.2 million of debt floating above me. Jesus. Were, was there ever a time you owned that business that you were that you were cash positive? Uh, Net positive? Yeah, the business itself, like the first year we took a little bit of a loss. Uh-huh. But then the second year of business, we grossed over $500,000 wow. and there was profit on it. Uh-huh. Um, but the money was just really like mishandled because there was so much back stuff every day i would have like an investor or whatever call me from the past saying oh i need this or i need that 
So I'm trying to run this business, but I can't because of the past. I should just cut off the past completely, separate it, and then start fresh there. Because my goal with Tuxedos was just to sell the brand, build it up, sell it, pay everyone back. Yeah. Unfortunately, I ran out of time at the end. I feel like if I had like one more good year on it, I could have done it because the socials were growing. I was already almost two years into the business. The whole industry knew of the club by that point. Like it was a successful um, club, but I just couldn't couldn't get ahead. One more month. Fucking I'd say one more, year, one more year. One more year. One more year and getting a liquor license on it. And now we were profitable without a liquor license. Never had one on it for when we were doing this big club. It, but we would make crazy money off of water, soda, Red Bull, yeah. um, all that shit. Like it just goes to show like what some of these venues make, like movie theaters and stuff. The markups are on that. It's better than liquor. I did a Steve Aoki show and I made 10 grand off of waters and Gatorade and Red Bull Holy and candy. Shit. Like that's just crazy. Was that's your bigger problem mismanaging money or debt, bad debt? For the club, it was both like... Um, I think it was like a lot of not realizing when to pick my battles or what to pay, what I could float. So like there would be instances where like I owed an artist money and I was so stressed out that I needed to get the money on this day that I would go to extreme measures to try to get that money only for that measure to not work out. And I'd be more in the hole and Ugh. then come to find out that I could have had a little bit more time to pay them and it all would have worked out. So like I would use ticketing money from a future show to pay off that one where if I just waited a couple weeks to do whatever, then it would have been a little bit different. Dude, you went, you went from, you went from getting into business. Basically the first business you got into was literally the hardest business in the world to get into. I just, I, I, I don't even know. Could, if you would have went back, if you, if you go back today, do you think a hundred percent you could be successful in that realm? I think business. so. I think if I well, knowing everything it, not to do, knowing now. everything, yeah. I, like I was good at running the club. Like I was great with event management. I know how to produce. Like that's why I hate when people compare me to Billy McFarland because the guy from Firefest, because that guy did not know how to produce an event. So yeah, when you no say that name, concept. I imagine a piece of cheese and two pieces of bread. <laughs> but that that's what <laughs> like people compare me to him all the time, especially now that he's going on TikTok and shit and trying to launch this like new event or new festival. Is he? Yeah, he put out this thing and he just did an interview with Good Morning America, like this whole thing saying like almost crying that he's so sorry, this and that. But then he launched on TikTok an event thing and it's like a treasure map and he's sending people to the Bahamas, like all this crazy shit. But at the end of the day, he didn't throw an event. Whereas right. like my story, like I threw successful events. It's just my downfall was like, how I manage the the money aspect of it. Low key, it might be incredible if you link up with him and you two put a fucking event on together. With Anna Delvey too. <laughs> the three of us and the Tinder oh swindler. Oh Bro, my God. that would be insane. I'd buy a ticket. I might even invest. Yeah, I, I don't Speaking know. Speaking of the mismanagement of money, I just, I want to hear about this because I can't picture it being any better than what I imagine. You guys had a Wells Fargo account. There's no fucking way a bunch of 19-year-old kids are writing down or keeping track of any of the money, where it's supposed to be going, the taxes you're supposed to be paying on the money you're making. Are you doing books at all? Like, How are you even managing this money with a bunch of teenagers? So the books got done once the investigation started <laughs> a year later. I fucking knew it. And I'm backtracking. I had all the records, like all the receipts and everything. I kept all that. And I just figured okay. eventually I would do it because my plan was once I made the money, I would go sit down with an accountant. Um, but the money is just going into the Wells Fargo bank account. 
and it's getting like we had me and my business partner had business debit cards and it was just getting so at spent. least you know it's being tracked you're yeah, tracking it, it as it you're was going being tracked but I are you paying taxes legit. year year after year or Nothing. like i mean we we're only in business a year oh okay yeah um we had like an entertainment llc before that but that like folded within a year too so that was like never on the radar okay um but yeah, it was just money in, money out, no accounting. It's crazy. And the bank tellers are looking at us like fucking crazy because I'm walking in with like a suit and tie on, <laughs> not even 18 years old, depositing checks for six figures. And oh my God. What? So for the people who don't know, what was the actual reason you got indicted? What was the charge? The charges. So the charges charged. were wire fraud, money laundering, and making a false statement. Now the wire fraud is basically like if you gave me $20,000... And I said it was for electronics, but I then took that money and put it into concerts. That's the wire fraud because you're using a check or an interstate wire to do that transaction. And it's all wire frauds based on like um, lying and, and bad intent. Money laundering is not what you think of when you hear, hear the term money laundering. It wasn't I wasn't moving money around for like drug dealers, which I technically was, but that's not what I was charged for. It's that I took your money and say it went into my bank account and I bought the pair of jet skis. They're saying that I'm hiding stolen money by purchasing jet skis. Ah. So that's like the wire fraud charge. And then making a false statement was when I met with postal inspectors. Um, when what, I was just trying to clear. What's a postal inspector? That's a hell of a question. I didn't know what I had. <laughs> I imagine like some guy checking mailboxes. What the fuck? So the, the post office actually has like a division of like armed agents Kind of like, and I didn't know the IRS has armed agents too. Um, so they have a criminal division that investigates mostly mail fraud, but they can investigate wire fraud. They were brought in on my, my case because they suspected mail fraud, which there wasn't. Mail fraud would be like if I sent you guys investor statements through the mail. That would then turn into a mail fraud case. Whoa. Which people do do that. So many but, levels. Yeah. Right. There's All right. A lot. So finish on the last thing you were indicted on. I interrupted um, you. What's the making a false statement? Met with postal inspectors, like innocently without a lawyer, trying to just clear everything up. And those guys took advantage of me, like real bad. They left with saying, just talk to us. Don't talk to a lawyer. Oh, you go. No. We're going to get you through everything. We're your friends. Oh. And then. I knew something was off. I called the lawyer that day and he said, don't ever talk to them again. And these guys are blowing up my phone. They're like, when can we meet uh, again? Can we get these documents? I said, you got to talk to my lawyer. And from that second, they were pissed. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. Can I ask one question? Ian, um, do you feel like you were guilty? I think like at, for the longest time, um, I thought I was like completely innocent only because I didn't have the intent um, to defraud anyone. I think like I'm definitely guilty of, you know, mishandling money, but I'm always going to like hold firm that I wasn't guilty of setting out to scam anyone from the, you know, um, but I definitely am guilty of like lying and trying to cover it up, which then essentially turns into like a fraudulent part. Right. But I'm always like when I defend about like when people say, oh, like you scammed your friends or you stole money, that's where I get defensive only because that's not what I set out to do. Right. So I try to differentiate that, but it did turn into like a scam unknowingly and just like accidentally. So that's like the, the part I'll admit that I'm guilty about. You never had malintent. Yeah, so then, never. So then in the end, do you think jail was justice for you? I think definitely the way like, cause I pissed off the court so much with going out of state, like to gamble. Oh yeah. And, um, 
You're like, so, cheating on your like, girl, but you didn't really mean nuts. it. So. I think I, <laughs> so there's multiple ways to look at it. One, like jail was definitely good. So I can, you know, reform myself and like physically and mentally like jail changed me as a person. Yeah. I don't think it sets like a good, like to reform someone in general. It's tough because I was just like, a ra- if I was truly a criminal, I would have picked up so much things in jail because you're around all these other criminals and you're learning all these things like scams or different types of hustles and stuff. Right, that's how you become institutionalized. And, exactly. And you don't seem to have become that at all. No, I, that wasn't a desire. Like I had so many guys that I was in prison with hit me up all the time. They're like, yo, I got a credit card scam or I got this and I got that. And there's just like no interest in that whatsoever. Um, but it was good for me to go to prison just to get like that aspect of life. I think like the sentence itself was a little bit on the longer side. I don't think I necessarily needed to go for three years. I think I probably would have learned what I did in like a year and a day yeah, or a year and a half, but it is what it is at that point. My lawyer was convinced I probably only would have got just house arrest had I not pissed off the judge really? so bad. Yeah. So I was actually facing seven to nine years in prison. That was the guidelines the judge departed down about 50% because of my age. And I went to trial and, and he understood like the whole case, but I get their point of view. They couldn't just let it slide that I was deliberately like bucking the court's order. And in my defense, like that's what kept the club going. Cause that's what I believed in, but they didn't see that because it wasn't successful, but I feel like had it been successful and I was able to pay everyone back, it would have came out differently. When you say you pissed off the judge so much, what what did you do? Like, I think there's a the I think so there's much? a list here. <laughs> yeah. There is a long list. So it really goes back to um, when I first got indicted. One of the conditions of my bail was I was banned from social media. The government came up with this elaborate story that I would use social media to contact witnesses. That wasn't the case. They just wanted me to not have success with running the club. So I go to court like once a month because they're trying to revoke my bond because I keep using social media and finding loopholes. Like I changed my name to my first name and then my middle name and all this shit. And these <laughs> the, my friends gosh. from Danbury that are hating on me are reporting it and all this shit. But every time the judges always ruled in my favor, the magistrate judge and the regular trial judge, um, because they were giving me a chance. But while this is going on, I'm sneaking out of state to gamble and so when they eventually found out about that, they looked at it as oh, the court's given you so many chances and you went off and you did this. And you're gambling to make back money you've lost to keep you floating. Oh uh, yeah. I'm gambling for cash flow because at this club, I was only <laughs> open twice a month, three times a month, but there were still regular bills. So you have the, you have the expenses of that night, like bringing in the production and everything. Cause we didn't own anything. It was just an empty shell. And then your monthly expenses of your electric, your taxes, you a ton of overhead. Yeah, your rent, everything like that. So it wasn't like I needed more. And then I just started learning about like renting the venue out a year and a half into it. And oh I could get God. like 10 grand for someone to rent the venue. But I wasn't doing that in the beginning because that wasn't my mindset. Um, so it was just things like that. I had no source of cash flow. Why did they start looking for you? Like what, what set it off? Because listen. 99.9% of businesses do something illegal. Like even if it's just like they write a check for a thousand bucks and they fucking put it in their personal bank account instead of their business bank account. Everyone's going to do shit to get under the radar to not pay taxes or to just find a loophole. Why did they start? Yeah, what was you the only spark? owned it for a year. 
what was the spark and how the fuck was it the FBI? <laughs> yeah, like you went from not being looked at to a fucking it the escalated top guy. real quickly. Um, so December of 2013, that's like when all the big concerts at like the arenas and stuff had completely failed. And with the interest on everyone, that's like that $1.2 million figure. I go to our family lawyer and I tell him this whole situation. This is the first time I ever sat down with anyone and said the shit I was in. Because at that point, there was no more loans. So you came get, clean came for clean, the first time to yep, a lawyer. To a lawyer. Told him the whole thing. That must have probably felt a little good. It felt good, but I thought he was going to help me. And instead, this is what throws the few, the, the gasoline on a, on a very big fire. Oh God. And he says, this is what we're going to do. <clears throat> we're going to restructure this debt. And we're going to renegotiate it. And then we'll figure out a payment plan with that. Which in hindsight was a great idea if we were dealing with a corporation and like adult investors instead we're dealing with about 20 people the majority of them are kids so how are they going to react to getting a letter saying you're not owed anything and we're re we were reanalyzing like the business so he sends out these letters to all these kid investors and the adults too but the adults were like kind of waiting to see how everything played out the kids on the other hand who are thinking they're owed thousands of thousands of dollars with all the interest are saying he's fucking us over. We're going the cops. That was ah, their first shit. instinct. They go the cops. One of the kids had invested $250,000 into concerts. He had won money from a lawsuit and he goes the cops, these detectives and the cops, when they see a figure of $250,000, they're thinking, okay, this is a huge scam. There's gotta be more of those investors. Come to find out in their investigation, there was only one investor with $250,000 and the rest were like small fish and it added up to less than $500,000 out-of-pocket loss. Um, so that's how the investigation starts, just locally. Mm -hmm. Then they like escalated it to the state's attorney. State's attorney just thought it was like a civil case, not really a criminal case. This detective, like in every movie, you have like that one antagonist, like in Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> I was going to ask who's your that, antagonist. That was this guy. This guy saw it through to the end, got it, like whatever connections he is had. Is this the Silver Fox? No, the Silver <laughs> Fox is with the feds. This okay. is Detective Brooks. He's like a couple years away at that point from retiring. And this is like the case of his lifetime. He's got it out for you. Yeah, this he is the biggest you. case of his career. And he's after me. It was so bad that when I actually got indicted, they had me sitting in the cold um, in handcuffs on the sidewalk outside my house for 15 minutes just so this guy could drive in the snow to say he got me. Say, so no do you remember way. me? Yeah, it was like a scene literally oh out of a movie. God, so dude. that was like the He went movie. to every court thing, and I feel like he was secretly pissed because they sidelined him. He didn't testify at trial. Um, he wasn't like at the prosecutor's table because once it becomes a federal case, it's like, fuck the state. Yeah. Um. So he was the one that had that driving push. Had it just been a state case, I probably would have got just probation, and it would have been settled, maybe even wow. civilly, because that's all it really like should have been looking back on it. But he got it to the Fed level. The Feds took over, and it just at that point, once the Feds are committed, they're committed. There's no going back. What a story! It seems that like is. you either have really, really, really good luck or the <laughs> shittiest shit luck in the world. Well, There's depending no on in how between this, for you. depending on how this turns out, then well, we oh could, yeah, yeah, well I'm just saying throughout this story, the, the, the highs are high and the lows are fucking low. Everything was just like so excessive, like it was meant to be like a movie. Like right. Just the the amount of craziness that it wasn't just like. Like, it could have just stopped at the local police. No trial, nothing. Okay, the story ends there. It's not that fascinating. Instead, everything is fucking bigger and bigger. Like, it's larger <laughs> than life. But that was my personality at the time, too. Right. Like, 
day I get indicted, my lawyer says, don't talk to the press, don't do anything. I get a voicemail from NBC and I'm like, come on over to the club. <laughs> Shut up, bro. They were not happy about that. No and I'm way. like filming this whole scene of me like painting the club. It's like nine o'clock at night and the NBC's with their whole crew inside the club. And I'm just whatever I can. Cause that was my persona. It was like larger than life. Right. Everything has to be bucking the system. Everything has to be bigger. And I pissed a lot of people off, you know, going about it that way. But that's like what makes the story even more interesting, like the absurdity of it. Right, right. So it's fair to say you're pro-government? <laughs> <laughs> Guy's got an issue with authority. I had a big issue with authority. I want to like know a, about the hard money lenders. Okay. I like, I, like the drug I, dealers? correct me if I'm wrong, but you're meeting up with these guys who are just into bad, bad shit and you're borrowing money from them mm. at what interest rate? Did I hear you say you borrowed $20,000 or was it $30,000 and you had one week to pay it back in full at $50,000. So I had like three, it was like 21 days, but yeah, I had 21 days. That guy was What's just the percent on that money. It's a lot. It's like, you need a loan, bro. It's something crazy. I got some like, <laughs> no, I don't ever want to borrow money from someone again. I'll borrow from a bank before I go to you. Sorry. Oh I'll take it from the bank. Probably smart, but I have cash on hand if you need it. Okay. Thank <laughs> you. Let me know. Good to know. Bryce is going to be your enforcer when I don't pay. He's going to show up at my door. <laughs> Honestly, if I had to if not owe money to anyone, it wouldn't be to him because I know he would be like going after it like at any cost. Yeah. No, he's got like you. that scary aspect of him. Bryce? No. Yeah. Never yeah. in my life. Have you Gang been watching his reels right. lately? He has like that persona where he's like a secret hitman or something. You guys should learn a little thing. <laughs> don't expose Bryce, bro. Yeah, no, he's like but a I don't play about assassin. money, though. Money yeah. is facts. Money. Facts. Yeah, he sends me an invoice. I'm paying that shit right away. There, there ain't no fucking with price. I let my shit relapse all the time. He sends a reminder every hour. <laughs> hey, you got to give the thirty. I said yes to this interview yesterday, and two minutes later, I got the invite in the email. He's Yo, no he's joke, a man. Business, man. This is why he's the man. This is why we 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 work with him. All right. So, you said before, and it just kind of slipped over, and I feel like nobody talked about it. Um, you had twenty investors that were all kids at one point. So you went. And had all these investors who, how many total investors did you have at, like, what was the most? Probably the most was like 30 and that was like a mix. And that doesn't count the shady total. figures because they never made it into like the court case or anything. I defended those guys to the end. I wasn't going to drop any names. That um, alone is like enough to kill someone. Like the stress to have 30 different people that you owe money to. Mm. And what was, what did it range from? The lowest to the highest? Lowest was like a thousand out of pocket to the highest, like 300,000 out of pocket. But the thing that really inflated everything was the interest because I was promising people a 50% rate of return. Holy oh shit. Now, I, I still want to hear about these shady guys you borrowed money so from. So the shady guys, like, in my first round of investments, because, like, throughout this whole story, there's different rounds of investments, different investors. Like, that's what, like, is a fascinating aspect of the story, story is that there's so many characters, but none of them know each other. It's just, like, constant. Like, diff you could go in 20 different directions with this. So the first time, like, I had ever borrowed from shady people was um, one of the investors knew like drug dealers and they would give me like five or 10 grand. Um, that was like something light, but I understood that concept of cash, like who I could go to if I ever needed cash. Paid them back, whatever. And then like a year down the road when I'm owning the nightclub, that's when I'm really introduced to like the heavy hitter, drug dealers, biker gangs, guys that have access to legit street money. Cash. And yeah, like cash. And when I needed cash, those are the guys to go to. And it's like you show up to their house and they have like a duffel bag full of like 
wads and wads of cash and it's all like drug money and what are their stipulations i want this back at this day they make their rules broken fucking legs yeah. they, what, they never get... threaten you in the beginning in the beginning yeah they play so the guys i was dealing with they're like they're chill guys um but they're not like they're not they're not like the mafia they're not um the cartel like that's a different ball game okay these are like local people you know that will hurt you if you don't pay them back but like you know they're, they're still they don't want to do that yeah but it's not like kidnap your family and you know saw them off like cartel type <laughs> shit they, that stuff does happen like the stuff that is oh, in the yeah. movies well, that's who i'm imagining you're with but yeah no i wasn't i mean i was with like one ex-mobster but he wasn't like associated like with the mob and stuff but i think the interesting aspect of that whole thing was they came to realize i wasn't trying to intentionally fuck them and they came to like me and enjoy being around me because they saw one i was hardworking. And two, like all the cards were stacked up against me. Yeah. So I think I won them over in that respect or else I would have ended up probably dead. Like if I was deliberately trying to fuck them, yeah. but they felt for me and they gained like some feeling and I had like that attention aspect. And that's, I think what saved me in that whole thing. Ian, what's the most violent, most violence you've experienced from a shady figure and, or the wildest threat? Um, so there's two scenarios. First time I ever got threatened was with a gun at the club and me and my business partner are there and I'm ducking. Like I was the worst communicator ever. Now I overly communicate because of all the shit that happened. But when I was owing money bad, do not disturb or block on my phone were my biggest features. <laughs> and, um, I didn't answer anyone. And so they would come to the club. And one day I'm pulled up in the club and they point a gun first at my business partner because he was talking shit. He's like very slick or whatever. And he points a gun at him and then he points a gun at me and he's like, start answering your fucking phone. So that was like the first real threat. Then a couple of weeks go by or whatever and I'm getting better at communicating, (laughs) but um, I'm not paying anybody. So they drag me into the, (laughs) they bring me in the basement of the club and they put my hand on the desk and um, he takes like a screwdriver. There's like a staple gun next to it. I'm thinking he's going to like staple my my hands or whatever. He takes a screwdriver and takes the end of it like where the handle is. And that shit hurts because it's cold outside. It's cold in the basement. And he's just whacking each finger until they're like completely black and blue. Oh, my God. That was like the most pain I've ever felt. <clears throat> Obviously, like I'd been like punched before and smack because they would smack me because it doesn't leave a mark. So like if they punched me, especially like when the the cops were on me and stuff, they didn't want me marked up. So they would smack me. They would come to the office, smack me around, grab me, like choke me by the neck, pick me up and stuff like that. But the the screwdriver thing was probably the worst um, experience. Screwdriver in the basement. Yeah, screwdriver in the basement. Everyone loves that story. You scared for your life at that? Um, I don't know what it was. I was never like. I don't know. It's just like my adrenaline was so high. Like you have to be in that moment, you know, like I didn't go. I think that was the other thing too. I never ran. I never hid and I earned respect because I didn't go and tell. Like I didn't put any of them under. I never tried to save myself. Everyone tried to save themselves against me, like my business partner and stuff. But I held true like to the end, never was going to give up any names because at the end of the day, they looked out for me. So what would it benefit me? Okay. I go to jail and then they're after me because I fucking snitched on all of them. I think I think deep down inside you're in your head you're like 
they're fucking my hand up. This is going to be good TV one day. <laughs> no, it's going to be a good story. I wasn't thinking about the story at all at that point. I was just trying to live another day. So when I finally go to prison, it was such a relief. Like that first night. Uh, really? Like, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. There's so you were, you were in so many lies from so many different avenues of people. And I heard Jordan Belfort say this. I don't think it was on Wolf Wall Street. I think he said in a podcast or on something. But he said, like, every time you do something wrong, your in moral compass takes one step down. So first, it's like when you're in seventh grade, I would never do drugs. Then you smoke weed and then weed is a normal. Now, then you try Coke and then Coke is a normal. And then you just go down this rabbit hole of like every time the line just steps on a little bit and you think that's OK. I'll just do this just a little bit. And you just kept going down the line of like, it was okay to take money from this guy. And then that's the normal. Yeah. So then now you'll take money from this guy because it was so much more closer to what your normal was. And you just went down this fucking rabbit hole of so <laughs> many lies of things of different avenues. And you were like, it almost was like there was nowhere, there was nothing you even could do, but just, just be in it and just keep trying to throw shit together to make it work, you know? Yeah, I mean, looking back on it now, it was only going to get end up two ways. Either me dead, or three ways. Me yeah. dead, me committing suicide, which is essentially me dead, or going to prison to... Because time heals everything. Yeah. So me getting removed from that situation really changed a lot of things. Did you think, when, when you were in the midst of it, like you said you owned it for a year, what point did you literally start to say to yourself, like, I just, I, I want to go to jail, or I want to kill myself? Were there those thoughts, or it just happened? I think there was always like suicidal thoughts, yeah. but I wouldn't actually do it. Like there was times I'd be like sitting in my car, just like breaking down, like in tears because like I like felt so terrible, like about the situation. Mm -hmm. Like, and a lot of people in the public, like never saw that aspect. I don't really talk about it like out openly about like how bad the mental state was. Cause at that point, the whole town of Danbury is bringing me through the mud. Like it wasn't until the HBO documentary that anyone really knew the whole story. It was just whatever the news times put out mm -hmm. right. and they're putting out all this fake shit. Like of course they're associating the fraud to the club, which wasn't the case at all. They were just putting out whatever, just to say whatever. And that like had a huge impact on like my mental health in that aspect. Right. And then seeing all my close friends from high school who I used to take care of had good relationships with even like ex-girlfriends, whatever constantly bash me every time an article got shared on Facebook it's all this crazy shit. And then to see it years later, them take it back. Because when the article, I mean, HBO came out, they watch it and they, I would see them post, wow, this definitely changes my perspective and opinion because the, the documentary humanized me. Right. Like it showed me as like a human, but it's kind of interesting. Like everyone's opinion changed just based off an article. You still knew like the, the me, but just because you heard one statement, that changed everything. Like I think society as like a, as a whole on a bigger picture really has to think about like what they're posting and what they're sharing just based off of what one person's saying. Cause you could right. like affect someone's life. So much influence. There's yeah. always two sides yes. to the story. And for, for a long time, you didn't have any platform or yeah. anywhere to speak your side of the story. And like, you know, if I heard your story and I didn't get to sit and speak with you in here, obviously you had no malintent in this. You didn't want to fucking hurt nobody, but that's what's so scary money. about social media today in general everything is that people can throw you they just curate whatever message right. that they want to be known to society and well, the they world. just want the juicy story. and that's the whole yeah. problem with social media that's why 
Fucking Andrew Tate is banned, and that's why he's trying to fight it right. is because of that. Right. Because they just canceled Donald Trump, or they canceled whoever it is. Well, they want to paint you as a Some stuff's cut they... and dry. Like, if someone kills someone, like, look at the Jeffrey Dahmer thing. Yeah. Right? Like, that's cut and dry. Like, you he could... wasn't such a bad guy. He just oh, wanted yeah, to have was... fun. <laughs> he just, he just wanted to, to give you pictures. a drink. But, like, that's cut and dry. Like, if someone, like, if there's a rape thing or whatever, yeah. like, there's very specific things, you know the facts, that and that. I think a story like mine should have been allowed to play out with all the facts. Like from both sides, that's what can ruin a reputation. Because at that point, when all that stuff came out, my reps already brought through the mud. What happens if I was innocent at trial? All that shit is out there at that point. It's not like a cut and dry thing. So it never goes away. It never goes away. And I I think that's at that point, like I knew my life was forever going to be changed. Like the second I I got arrested and stuff, because at that point, all my dirty laundry is out there. Um, And that was like one of my contributing factors to why I quit my job like this past year, like in August. Cause I'm thinking two things. One, do I really want to work in retail for the rest of my life? And two, like, this is always going to be a part of me. There's no letting it go. Like it's always going to follow me. It's always going to come up in relationships. Like as much as I want to hide it. And I feel like the last couple of years I was just like letting it sit idle. I wasn't embracing it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I got a couple documentaries and I would promote them like when they came about but I wasn't necessarily owning it. It wasn't my persona. So the second I jumped into making it my persona and making it my life and kind of like making it into entertainment, I think like so many different doors opened up and things like started to change for me in a positive way. Yeah, the story's not over. Yeah, the story's not over. That's You awesome. try to put it to the side for a couple of years and I, then you yeah. end up coming back to it. Now you're saying? Yeah, yeah, so like the first year I got out, I was focused on like selling the story, this and that. It's very slow going in the entertainment business and like those, the book things not happening, this and that. So I devoted time to working on me. I got a good job, worked my way up to a manager, uh, rebuilt my credit, got a car in my name, got an apartment, became so self-efficient. And then when all those things, it's actually funny. The day I got my own car in my name, that night, HBO hit me up um, about doing the documentary. And then there was another year during COVID and stuff. I was, cause the documentary is being made. I was just so focused on work. I was pouring my heart and soul into Whole Foods, which is where I was working. Yep. And then the documentary came out and I was still working for Whole Foods, but it didn't like catapult me to like a new platform or anything. The documentary it just came out and I did a couple more interviews, but I wasn't chasing after it. We were still working behind the scenes to make a pitch for a, a bigger thing. Cause we always believed it needed to be more than an hour and like a TV series. Then I do the Vice thing, the Vice documentary. That does a couple million views, but, you know, nothing major. And then this year when, you know, I'm sitting at work and I'm like, this is going really slow and I need to make the decision here if I'm going to put fuel on the fire or I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and like living like this boring life that I was like already getting bored of. And I'm like, that's not me. Like I went through all this crazy shit. I did all this shit at a very young age. Like I need to get back to that, like that excitement. I found myself living like this nine to five life. I was putting on weight again. I wasn't hitting the gym again. And I was getting into like, I wasn't happy. So as soon as I started changing, I've been in the gym ever since, like ever since I quit my job. Yeah. What my, sparked you to quit the job? I got to know. Hold up, hold up. Before I have to add, this can be deleted <laughs> if we need to. Did you work at the Danbury, the, the Whole Foods across the street from the Danbury Mall? So that's where I started as a cook. And that's crazy. I used to go there. <laughs> Every fucking day. Yeah. That's crazy. I started there as a cook, worked my way up to assistant manager, and then I got promoted at a new Long Island store to be team leader um, in end of 2021, then came back as manager, the head manager this year. 
Um, and I ended up making like 32 bucks an hour with overtime. You make over a hundred K and which you wouldn't expect from a grocery store. Right. But I was just like busting my ass every day for a company that like Slaving, could give dude. two shits Slaving. about me. And I'm like, okay, if I put that same work ethic into me, into driving my story, what could happen? And TikTok is helping me sell my story right now because now there's a high demand to have on paper 25 million views in this period of time, all these viral videos. Attention is the new oil, bro. Exactly. So that's helping me. Whereas like I didn't have that over the last couple of years. Now I do. Now I have something to bring to the table. And it's like, listen, this story is huge. Like people are interested. People like it. Let's do something. So now it brought like all the pieces together. So how's it happen? You go into work one day, you're stocking shelves and you're like, fuck this. I quit. <laughs> so my job was like very high paced. I did prepared foods. So I was like the hardest worker in the room. Of course it was fucking high paced. That's who you are. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm like. A lot of people don't know this about me, but like I was always a hard worker during the clubs. Like I would stay up all night. If we had a show the next day, I was cleaning it one. Cause I had no money to pay someone, but <laughs> I was cleaning it. I was cleaning the bathrooms. I was doing everything. Like I'm insanely hands-on, extremely hardworking. And no one really saw that side of me unless like they really genuinely knew me because the papers make me to sound like this like rich snobby kid that was lazy as shit it it but, does do yeah, that i know but my work ethic was like next level and i put that into whole foods and that was my all like i saw myself going all the way to the top and it was like a definitely very life-changing decision to throw that all out to the side yeah you gotta have some balls man yeah and i always took risks so why not take this one and retail is always going to be there right. if i took the risk to not do tiktok a couple things were going through my mind one I knew I couldn't work there and talk about prison and stories and crazy shit and me fucking girls or whatever on social media, put it out there and still work in this corporate job. The two weren't going to coincide. And number two, if it didn't work out, say my views didn't go anywhere, followers didn't go anywhere, whatever, I could go back to retail. Maybe not Whole Foods. I could go anywhere though. Yeah, as long as you're willing yeah. to work hard, there's a million fucking businesses. Work my you way up. It with. didn't exactly. matter. So that was my decision. And, you know, <clears throat> I just jumped into it. When I commit to something, I'm all in relationship, business, anything. If it's in my mind to do, you're doing it. I'm doing it. So you tell your boss you're quitting. Is he like, what are you fucking joking? He, he was shocked. So actually at the time, and I think this is what I told myself to really get me to quit. I was interviewing for an MTV show. Um, they wanted me on like some new dating show type thing um, yeah. with people with like, um, like sketchy or not sketchy, like, um, like colorful backgrounds. So I was doing the interview and it, they were uh, like, I got to like a later round in it and um, they were like, you would have to be able to go out of the country um, for work uh, to like to, to film this. It was in like a tropical island or whatever in October. And so one, I had just gotten my passport back from the court. So I'm thinking in my head, okay, this is happening for a reason. I've got my passport back. I'm able to do it. I'm off probation. Um, and then two, I'm just thinking, okay, like they hit me up because they saw my TikTok. So I'm like, okay, this is meant to be. So I use that as my reason for I'm quitting. I said, listen, I got this opportunity to do this MTV show. Well, I never ended up hearing back from the MTV show, but at the same time, that was a blessing because I couldn't focus on the time I needed to put into my social media if I did the show. Right. And now I have offers for other shows because the casting directors see the TikTok. That's what they're looking for. And that small payout wouldn't have affected what would have affected my long-term goal like i didn't need to be on a dating show one yeah. i didn't even look the part at that point to go on a dating show but you know it's just life happens the way it happens yeah 
but that definitely helped me quit too because that put in my mind like okay i need to leave this place because i have this opportunity that's crazy how that all pans out now another thing i want to talk about is so you get indicted you get charged with all these charges you go to jail now you still owed money that doesn't just go away you have to pay restitution. How does that work? So you get a court ordered restitution. You can't declare bankruptcy on it. Um, the debt's good for like 20 years. Um, like it's a 20 year judgment. And I think they have an option to renew. I don't know how that works. While I was on probation, I was paying $1,000 a month. Now it's just based off of my income. As soon as probation ends, it, it falls off criminally. Then it's just civilly. They can go after you civilly. Whereas in probation, if you don't pay, you could go back to jail. Okay. For Because that's a condition of release. So all the conditions they gave me a part of supervised release and the second year off supervised release, those rules don't apply anymore. Um, so that is something like I'm working towards paying. Like I pay a percentage of my income. My income's obviously a lot lower now that I left Whole Foods. But my goal is I get one big deal, give it to the lawyer, and then the lawyer handles it from there, either negotiates down or whatever they can do to wipe it up. But that's the game plan. Does it come with interest? No, no interest on it. Okay, so what's the nut? If you, are you so the total nut was like four hundred eighty thousand. Damn, wow. And then plus there's the street money that's still owed out on the street. Oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> well, which one are you uh, more scared about? Not no, paying? I think so. The street one is not like a. I I don't think it's like from my perspective, it's a. I have to pay. I think it got written off. Um, but I think it's more like that's the right thing to do. Right. So some of that money is like my dad's money that he put in. Obviously, my dad's not coming after me. Another one is some other friends and stuff that I never threw them under, but time we're talking about almost 10 years now. Yeah. Nothing's really happened, you know, in 10 years, but I still communicate with them. And there's that mutual respect that I didn't throw any of them under the bus. But like, I want to be able to get to the point where I could go up to them and say, Hey, thank you. Here you go. Like, I appreciate it. I know the people that looked out for me and I'm not going to forget that. Good man. And like now some people hate on me on Facebook, like from Danbury, all my hate, on social media comes from Danbury people for the most part. (laughs) Typical hate like all around the world of like stupid prison comments or whatever. But the real hate, like someone wrote on my post the other day when I posted my analytics for uh, for TikTok, they were like, you should be taking care of all the people you screwed over instead of monetizing this and that. They don't get the bigger picture of what I'm trying to do to build it. Like if I post on my Facebook page, an image that I did 20 million views in a month or whatever, that's just to drive attention to my story. That's not me bragging about anything or doing anything like that. That's me. That's marketing. It's working the machine. It's working the machine to get the bigger picture. And I'm playing the long game. They're small minded and they're not understanding it. It's not like I just have the money right now to pay everyone back. Don't forget, if you don't have haters, you're not doing anything. You need to have haters. I'm a big believer. Like one, there's no such thing as bad press. And then two, you have to have haters. Yeah. Were you the only one that went to jail? Yeah, so my business partner oh, yeah. um, ratted on me all the way. Like He stayed loyal. So we made a deal. When the investigation was started, I said, listen, his name's John. I'll take all the, the blame for it, but you just stay in my corner. That's all I want from you. Just stay in my corner. Don't go against me, but I'll say I did everything. Oh you had nothing God. to do with you it. took the out on that? Because the guy was going to college. I didn't want to screw anything up, and I understood. You know, I was like, okay, I was the center of this. Whatever. So we had that arrangement. Three days before the trial, he decides to to cop a plea, and That's and to crazy. to to because they were threatening him or whatever, but they weren't going to charge him. That's what the feds do. Yeah. They were going to investors saying they were going to indict them on charges unless they testified. Um, How old was he? 
You're he was my age. Oh, same. And you're still her. friends with this guy or not? No, we talk occasionally on Facebook and stuff. He declined um, to do the HBO documentary and stuff, but he's a fucking rat. No matter what documentary he does, it's always going to portray him as the close friend that turned on me, yeah. and I stayed loyal There's to him to the end. Do. There's nothing he could do. Fuck you, John. Yeah, I mean, so he was saying to me, like, oh, they weren't offering enough money for me to do. I'm going to wait for the right deal. But it's like, that was your, my producer tells me this all the time. Him turning it down, that was like his chance to get into the spotlight. And the guy turned it down. And I get his perspective. He went to college. He's in business, whatever. And he'll never own this situation, like the way I have to own it. And that's what makes us or me very unique and different. Um, but he turned on me right before the trial, did a plea to get probation on a state charge for lying. Um, so he got off scot clean and his restitution was only 30 grand, wow. which didn't make any sense. How are we equal partners and his restitution's only 30 grand? There's a hundred times that and some. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't make sense. But so he nuts. got the perks of everything, you know, the, the artists, the cars, the, the clothing, everything. And no repercussions whatsoever. So Jordan Belfort is like really your idol. No, <laughs> even the way he's a fucking snitch. No, he's, too. He's, <laughs> he snitched on everyone. Yo, my my sales director yeah. fucking hates him. The like when I talk snitch. about him, he's he can't he's, stand him. He saved himself, man. He threw yeah. everyone under. He got less. He only got four years in prison for a hundred ten million dollars. Yeah. The guy posts about like owning all these houses, cars, all this shit, and he still yeah. owes all the money. He's only paid like ten million. His net worth on Google, I think it says negative 100 million still. Yeah. Literally but says negative the guy's got million. money. Like he's got, he knows how to play the game. He's got money overseas and stuff. Biggest scumbag. If you in the Google world. him in the news, there's all these things about the, like the government bringing him to court and stuff to try to get money from him after all these years. He fights that shit. That's so different from like my case. Yeah. But people don't look at that aspect of it no, or whatever. Nobody right. can see it that deep. Yeah. No one's going to see it that deep. May I, may I jump in for Go a ahead. So oh, Bryce is he loves world. jumping he in. Loves <laughs> yeah, Ian. Where's Damon John? What <laughs> Give four hundred eighty thousand dollars. Yo, who is this guy right now? <laughs> <laughs> Are you part of the podcast, bro? Damon oh, John is ass. <laughs> nah, I'm lucky to be in the room because with you guys because it's it's a unique scenario here. It has to be said that everybody thinks their story is really cool, um, or that they deserve to be on a TV show. And I think this is an interesting scenario because I have all three of you in the room and all three of you have unique stories. And what people don't really understand about social media is that like, it's not the way to pop is not only to like have a cool video doing something cool. You actually have to have depth to your authentic story. And uh, you guys are all unique in individually in that. But Ian, you owe $480,000 in restitution and you always say online, that your plan is to sell your sto- rights to your story in order to pay it back. So, like, can you talk about, like, what would be your perfect picture of success as far as, like, your story being, you know, your story? Who would play you in a movie? Hmm. Um, so the goal is obviously sell the story, get X amount of dollars, pay everyone back, and then that that chapter closes there. And then I could then use that platform to make money for myself. Like I, at that point, like once the money's paid off, then I could start like profiting heavier, whatever it is to for with my life, whatever direction I go in, I see kind of myself getting into public speaking, talking to schools and colleges, because that's where my story is going to resonate with the most. Um, and then playing me in a TV show or movie, 
Honestly, I was thinking kind of like Miles Teller because he's still kind of like young. Dude. And he looks like me a little exactly bit. exactly who I was yeah. going to say. And you would That's have to have two characters. Crazy. You need younger Ian, like a chubby younger Ian. And then he would be like high school Ian because he so does you have, play uh, uh, what's his younger name roles. From super bad. Yeah. What's his name? Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill. Uh, he's a little old. He's older now. Yeah, All right. tough, right? yeah. He's mad skinny. So but the guy OG from Jonah. the kid from Thirteen Reasons Why would be good too. He's kind of got like that perspective. Put some glasses on, uh, on him or something. What's What's the title? Um. So my title was the party's over because that I, that's what Ooh. I've been riding with because that's what the judge said. So it's like literally my whole persona is the party's over. Nightclub owner at eighteen, federal inmate at twenty one. Mm. But I know like the show they're pitching right now is in the pitch deck because you put together like this whole elaborate slideshow pitch deck and everything. Um, it's teenage Ponzi. Teenage uh, that's Ponzi. like one of, one of the ones Vice used. Yeah. Obviously, that's all subject to change. But I see it as like the party's over. But they probably won't use that because HBO used that name. Okay. Listen, um, I need you to promise that if it goes to the big screen, you I get to tickets. bash your fingers with the screwdriver. <laughs> You're bashing the fingers. I want to be that guy. You want a cameo? Uh, I need to. Okay. <laughs> Where's the fucking screwdriver? You owe me money, motherfucker. We're to have Bryce do it. Okay, maybe Bryce. I couldn't get away with that. Yo, you've always had a knack for like being involved in the entertainment industry, not only with throwing concerts, but actually pitching with producers and talking to news outlets and talking to TV shows and production and things like that. So for someone who does have a story, um, what's it like, like mixing it up? What's it like being on set with HBO directors? What's it like pitching your story to potentially be sold to Netflix? Like, can you talk about that side of the entertainment industry? And the big artists that you bump shoulders with i mean you must have some rapport with some of these guys they know you so to me and i i learned this at a young age because i get it from my dad my dad owns a catering company and i didn't realize the caliber of his company until i got older he would come home and he'd be like yeah i was hanging out with like this famous pop star last night and i'm like okay and he shows me a picture it's fucking hillary duff and i was obsessed what? with hillary duff at one point like she was my idol i, I had a poster we all were back in the day and then he would start talking about all the artists he was working with. He did like 50 cents, like big summer bash in the Bronx. What? He did um, all the Harry Potter premieres. I got to go to the premiere of the movie for the Goblet of Fire in New York City, met the cast, got pictures with them. Bro, what yeah. the he, fuck? He catered for Hillary Clinton, did the Rolling Stones, um, knows Keith Richards, like all this crazy shit. But he's just so nonchalant about it. But I'm a teenager, like, I'm thinking, wow, this is the coolest fucking thing in the world. Um, big celebrities. And when I finally started hanging out with the celebrities, I understood what he meant because they're just like normal people. Some are fucking dicks. Like some of these DJs and especially the rap stars. I don't really have anything nice to say about the rap stars. They were going to say it. Big I want to hear about 50. Did you meet 50 I didn't at meet all? 50. Okay. Big Sean was the nicest rapper I ever worked with. Wow. Tyga's a fucking prick. I paid 40 <laughs> grand for him and the man wouldn't even give me a handshake. He's short as shit too, like really short. <laughs> Fuck short. He's probably man he's probably shorter than Kylie Jenner, honestly. So no wonder the relationship didn't work out. Um, but Big Sean was the nicest. Twenty One Savage was a prick too. Um, Ray Shremmerd was all right. He was okay. Uh, YG was another asshole too. I mean, Wiz didn't even show up. Oh well, that's a different story. We didn't even end up booking him. Oh. Um, and Chief Keef didn't show up. So I have no regard for Chief Keef. <laughs> yeah, it's not a surprise. Um, but the DJs are super nice. Like Steve Aoki, the nicest man I've ever met in All my right. life. Super chill, down to earth. He went out of his way to, to meet me. He was like, who's the owner of this place? This is awesome. Took pictures. Um, nice. He did that picture, us hanging up or him hanging upside down. 
Um, super nice. Same with Blau. Those were like the two nicest ones. Adventure Club was kind of pricks, or one of them was. The other one wasn't. Uh, Cash Cash was super cool with. And I was just like hanging out with these guys. We would bring them to the hotels. We would drive with them in their cars. We would have dinner with them. And it wasn't like, like I wasn't obsessed with flexing that. Like the pictures I have with these artists are slim to none. Like I have a couple pictures like in the moment with like certain celebrities. Mm -hmm. But when you're hanging out with them, it's not even on your mind. Like you're just living in the moment. Are you, so you're not using that clout to like, you're young. You're not using that to like get laid and be like, calling chicks and like yo we're going to get lunch with laid back luke like what are you doing at that time girls were like hooking up with me because they wanted free concert tickets so they were like sending nudes in on snapchat or doing this and that they just wanted concert tickets and because i'm looking at photos now i was fucking ugly like i'm fucking fat and i'm like how did i get girls but it's just because of the club if i looked like the way I do now, like when I own the club, it's over. Like me and my friends talk about all this all the time. Slanging dick. Yeah, I was like so not confident at all, which is surprising because I owned a club. I was confident in certain ways, like in the moment, but I couldn't talk to girls. Like it just, it wasn't my thing. That's not what I was good at. Right. Um. So I think when I started dealing with like HBO and dealing with streaming sites and stuff, like it's a lot less nonchalant. I Like it's more, I don't know, whatever the word is, but it, it's like, felt more comfortable because i'm exposed to that environment um and like when the hbo doc came out i had a lot of celebrities slide into my dms um just saying hey i watched the doc like this is this is awesome when you're hanging out like that's what my life is going to become so you kind of got to be like it just it is what it is they're normal people too right. i mean so you got to treat everyone like that i think it's so yeah. weird when you see like a famous person and people go crazy like we just had it who were we yeah. we were eating dinner at the fucking steakhouse and chaz palminteri chaz palminteri's there yeah. some fucking weirdo chaz palminteri's walking it? out Who's he chaz? wrote the bronx tale he's and I he never was, saw it. someone never seen the bronx that's tale? the second time in a week someone told me to go watch the bronx tale Bro, you never seen a bronx tale? No, classic that's a sign. i gotta go watch with, it. okay with, so uh, anyway it's Robert like jesus is sitting at this fucking place with us and some guy walks up with a copy of the bible and he's like can you sign this did he like, sign it? No, he was like, get the fuck out of my face. Wow. What a weird thing to but do. That's like what Damon John said about you guys. Like it was, you guys went out and took a risk to go and, and talk yeah, to them like normal people, people, you know, it's not like you're a fan uh, girl and or whatever. It's right. like, yo, 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 we need you. Like you took a Those risk. Those people hate to get idolized because they yeah. just want to be normal people it's fucking at the weird. end of the day, you know? And that's. So we got Damon John on until he sharked us in the interview. In the interview, but <laughs> what do you mean he sharked? Yeah. Oh, dude, he fucking. Did, did you watch the beginning when he was just? I watched something on, us? on YouTube. Yeah, I know. In the beginning, he was like, "Why did I do this podcast? Yeah, you guys bro, got he like no." Roasted. <laughs> asshole was sweating when he said that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I thought the Bryce scene was hilarious when he was calling out Bryce. When he called out Bryce, yeah, he was like, "Who the fuck is this guy?" Classic. <laughs> Don't you think that he was just dogging us for because it made sense because our show was so unknown at that point that. Everyone watching is thinking, how did these guys get him on? And he addressed it immediately. immediately Dude, I think we course, had 100 bro. subscribers at the time. Yeah. yeah. We like maybe a few hundred. But then what he said at the end was good about talking about how um, he, you know, it, he wanted to give a guy like you guys the chance. Yeah. Like that's as his job as like an entrepreneur and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, which that was, was his whole thing on Shark Tank. That right. was the best yeah. comeback line. Tony said it. And he, he hopes that he was like the least uh, important person on your show. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. He's a real 
he's a real player. Also, now that I know you're a fan, we appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he's he's a real one for that. Like to say shit like that and give us that opportunity. It was crazy. Yeah. You know what people bring up all the time, the moment in the show. You referenced a couple that people always reference, but he the people always reference the moment when he tells George, the manager, to give him ten more minutes. Yeah. That that's said, great. He said, yeah. No, not two more minutes, ten more. Everyone yeah. says that is indicative yeah. of the fact that you guys, he roasted you and then proceeded to give the most in-depth interviews. Absolutely ever roasted us. Yeah. Bro, it's still, he has the most clips. He has the most views from our clips. Right. Well, because he said he doesn't yeah, really do many uh, podcasts, too. Right. So that was good that you guys did that. Let's talk about the scumbags in jail. Scumbags in I was, jail. He, I remember hearing something about, like, the Jewish pedophiles. You. Oh. <laughs> There's a lot of those. Why? Yeah, so I was, what uh, is that? I was... um. When I was in the shoe in Danbury, I had a bunkmate who was like this white guy, Jewish guy who looked like he was 19, but he was really 40. Like this guy did not age well at all. And he was there for a sex crime. Um, and he had a lot of pull. He was like the head Jew on the compound. How do you and, have pull as a sex offender? I thought those people get treated like they should. And in the lows, you don't really want to. So guys in the lows don't want to touch the sex offenders or whatever because they don't want to leave the low like these hard-ass criminals that have gotten 20-year sentences that work their way down to a low they're not going to throw that out the window they could talk all the shit they want in the world about this and that gangs whatever they're not giving up their spot at the low maybe some will but the majority of them won't and And low is low security prison then there's minimum the camps but sex offenders can't get into camps um so well some of them do. Yeah, they no, sneak not right in the, into little kids' camps. Oh. oh my god! Okay, so I had to Come at, on. at the Danbury <laughs> prison. It's it's very sex offender friendly. So there's a lot of sex oh, offenders, god. and also the Jews run pretty much any compound. What they have Otisville, the camp where like Billy McFarlane went, where um Cohen went from Trump's crew, Jewish. Um, you have pull. A lot of it's because the rabbis have so much pull. The rabbis are connected to the governors. They're connected to. Um, government, whatever they can get, whatever they need. You know, a good rabbi, you can get anything you need. Like me and my dad were looking into saying, like I had a bat mitzvah or anything like that, because his side's of family is Jewish, just so I can get pulled to like move me around to different prisons and stuff. You make a donation to a certain rabbi, they call the prison. It's very political. Any, yeah. Where's Kanye at? Where's (laughs) Kanye at right now? Anyways, so. Fuck. Yo, we'll yeah. get canceled if we say anything I like can, that. I, I, that's yeah. why I'm not saying anything. Nah, you, can, you can't. Yeah, you Jews can't. run the fucking world. <laughs> they do. They really do. They really do. If you could be a sex offender and still a respected Jew in that prison, because you're, they're not fucking with the Jews. I thought you was 16. <laughs> so, anyways, um, <laughs> Yo, this guy who I'm in the cell with, um, I didn't know he was a sex offender at first because all the other inmates were talking to him like he was cool. Like everything was good, like in the shoe, these hardened guys. But the way they would do it is the Jews had pulled to get in anything, cell phones, food. So they would take care of these guys to earn like respect or whatever. And are these guys like Jewish, Jewish, like with the curls and everything? The fucking... They got the yarmulke on and stuff. It's religion is what they don't play around with in prison. If you're religious, they're going to honor that because that's a whole that's in breaching on your right. You know, you could be a. Like you could be a Jeffrey Dahmer and you say you want to practice like in the show, they got him baptized. They do not play with that. Yeah. So whatever religion is yeah, not something that gets messed with. Oh, wow. So interesting. This guy, his name was Sammy and he was bunked up with me 
And eventually I find out like, cause we're together all the 24 hours a day for X amount of time. He tells me the whole story of why he was under investigation. And he had the rabbi smuggling them in kosher meats, um, electronics inside the meats, all this outside food His mom and dad would bake like a nice Jewish spread and he would bring it in uh, because they, however they smuggled it in, the guy was able to bring it in. So once they eventually found out, they put them both under investigation um it was just it was it was crazy that's nutty dude yep smuggling stuff into prison i, I still don't understand it's like, a whole guards this... are making thousands of dollars oh so they're in okay oh guard in the lows the guards are in on it a guard can get like five grand for a cell phone so imagine you're smuggling in a, a phone right you can get it in to make a quick five grand and they're probably not doing heavy investigation on the guards no because... now it's more or less coming out like you read a lot of articles about guards being charged um, in these things now. Um, but the biggest issue now is guards sleeping with inmates that is running rampant. Wait, female guards are like dudes on dudes. Uh, so men sleeping with women and then female guards sleeping with men. So that's like a big thing. And when I was in the shoe in Danbury, there was like three different guys under investigation for sleeping with female staff. I mean, these, the, when you're, when you're a prison guard, so my ex-girlfriend, her father used to work at a uh, green Haven and you, you, like if that's your life that's your job you're there for 12 hours a day you are you pick up all the inmates mentalities and lifestyles and, and thought processes because you're inside the walls just like they are yeah even though you have on a badge and you do whatever you're still in those cement walls you're still with criminals all the goddamn time and just i mean i'm not surprised if i was if i was making a thousand bucks a week and you tell me five grand to bring in a cell phone I mean, there was one woman uh, counselor, case manager, who her husband was a guard at that same prison, and she was sleeping with inmates. So it just like inmates <laughs> like multiple. Yeah, and the it, inmates get in trouble, or does this bitch? So the inmate will get in trouble just a prison policy, but they can't get charged criminally. But they still investigate because you're not supposed to be doing that. So that's just like a prison charge. Mm -hmm. um, they call it like a shot. So they lock you up under investigation. It's so hard to prove it though, because you need both of them to admit that it was done, but the, the guard itself could get charged criminally. You, you read about that a lot. What's your favorite prison movie? Prison, like a movie about prison? Yours. I, I would say Con Air. <laughs> That's yet to come out. Fucking Con Air. Con Air. Wow. I just did a post about Con Air and it did a million uh, views the other day telling my Con Air story because I wrote on Con Air, but that's a fucking, I've watched that movie a hundred times. You wrote on Con Air? Mm-hmm. It's not you like the movie whatsoever. By plane? Transferred by plane. It was this old plane from probably the fucking 80s. So the, um, the old um, commercial planes, when they get decommissioned or whatever, go to the U.S. Marshal Service. Um, <laughs> this doesn't work that well. Let's yeah, load it with prisoners. There, there was duct tape on the fucking wings. It's <laughs> crazy. Yeah, what? There was duct tape world? on the wings. Yo. So we were at the, the Westchester Airport or whatever that's called. Um, yeah. There's a military base near there or something like that. Mm -hmm. That's where you get picked up on the whole airport is surrounded by u.s marshals and m16s and shit the marshals on the plane all have guns but they're in like these fingerprinted like lock sealed cases they're like booby trapped on them it's like kind of crazy so like an inmate can't get into it you're chained to the seat that plane goes down you're fucked <laughs> like you're just you're dead. you're dead um and they, they're old ass planes you said old planes and even the marshals they're like ready to retire they're like all, they put them on like, yeah, if no, they die, it doesn't they, really They're matter. like all overweight. Like there wasn't one skinny U.S. Marshal on that plane. Like the woman and they're sitting there like 
eating fast food and they're like chowing down on all this shit and they're like eating like slobs and all this. Did you say you were chained to a seat on a plane? Yeah, yeah. you're chained to it. You're shackled. Jane tries to run away. Yeah, you got a little, you got a <laughs> peanut butter and jelly sandwich that you're snacking on while the guards are eating fried chicken. Go? <laughs> um, and then they put the woman inmates in the front of the plane so you can't like talk to them or whatever. You get in trouble you if you talk to them. Up yeah. there in the cockpit. <laughs> so that was my experience on Cot Air. Did anyone get, did you ever experience or hear of somebody getting pregnant in while they were in prison? Um, I heard of a guard getting pregnant. I don't know if it was true. She was actually pregnant. Rumors were saying that she got pregnant from an inmate, but does the kid did, do that, time? <laughs> does the kid have does to the finish kid... the sentence with daddy? No, but like, that's the type of shit that you hear about, you know? Oh my God. Dude, what a crazy fucking story. I know. How much time are we at? Wow, really? We got a lot of goodies, or you guys want to keep it rolling? Okay, one more thing, uh, and then whatever you guys want to do, but um, unless unless everyone wants to wrap it up, you guys want to wrap it go up? Go ahead. No, no, let's do it. Ian, like, did you just go on like like what it's like, you know, being basically in Hollywood, handling HBO, handling Vice, like just a little bit? I don't know. I don't think you really thoroughly touched on it. Um, have you been in meetings with Netflix executive executives? Um, so I personally never go to the meetings. I have like a producer that does everything. So like, basically I signed like an agreement. It's called a shopping agreement with this producer who believed in my stories since day one. So like the balls in her court, she's been working on this since 2019. When I got out, she actually lives in the town over from me and her son was friends with my brother. And this woman knows me better than anyone else. Like knows the story, knows all the characters. She's the only person on this earth that can connect all the dots because she studied it. Um, so she is the one that pitches it to studios. She has all the contacts. She just teamed up with another production team, which is a pretty big production team who has a deal with audible and Amazon mm-hmm. um, and another deal with um, like um, Warner brothers or something like that. And so they're teamed up and they're now bringing it to major studios who then once a studio signs on, will bring it to the streaming sites. So we're like, we're super far along in the process now where we're actually pitching and we have like the whole pitch deck and everything. And what we're doing is we're starting with a documentary series, six to eight episodes, like an hour long each. Um, And then from there, we want to turn that into like an unscripted or scripted TV series um, where you can like, I kind of see it like you guys ever watch Power? I have. So kind of like that where, because you could spin this off, like you can incorporate drugs into the club, like this idea of a teenager owning a nightclub you can say like I'm selling drugs. I'm doing like all this different shit. Right, you spice it up. A you little. spice it up. Like it could really like what they did with Orange is the New Black. I, I see that happening. And then you have the aspect of prison. Like you have all this crazy shit that you could fluff up. Right, right. Um, but the main focus now, do the docu series like kind of like what Anna Delvey did, Tinder Swindler on like a major platform. Blow that up, and then from there turn it into something else. Um, but we're very close to that. Like the in their eyes, they envision a deal happening. Like either before the new year or after the new year. Wow. And that's that's how, awesome. But this is three years in the making. It took this long just to get here. A lot of no's too. Like yeah. that's the one thing in the industry it's that's so weird. important. I mean, there's no doubt your story is fucking wild. But it's all about timing. So like we've had meetings with like huge companies, like and even big actors, like major companies. And they're like, we love the story, but our plate's full. Like you could have a meeting with Adam Sandler tomorrow and he could love it and fall in love with it or whatever. 
But if he has his films planned out for the next two years, it's not happening. Right. Wolf of Wall Street in his book, he puts on saying that the rights to the film or whatever got sold years before, but it just kept getting put on the back burner. He didn't think it was going to happen. And then Leo called him one day and said, hey, we're going forward. Once it's rolling, it happens fast. But to get there, very slow. HBO, when we signed on, took another six to eight months before we even started filming. And that was a smaller thing. So it's well, a waiting game. If you wanted game. to pop, you just have to tell them that on the inside, you've always felt like a woman. And then instantly, it'll go to fucking to the moon. But, All they want to know is you want to tuck your dick in. And Hollywood loves it. That's why the TikTok is great, though, because it puts that fire on it. You know, because then it's like, okay, now we there's the interest. Yeah. It's not like now it's not like we have to be slow on it. It's like, okay, this is popular now. Like there's an interest. Let's run with it. So we put those stats in like the pitch deck and stuff. Favorite scene from the Wolf of Wall Street. Um, I, I really liked all of his scenes with the FBI agent. Cause I think like that's so close. Yeah. Like Fun throwing coupons. the, f- throwing the money at him, <laughs> throwing the lobster at him. Um, I really liked that. And I like just like, the ending when he like gets like arrested by the FBI and turns his life around like snitch or not. I like the point where he turned a negative situation into a positive, which is like what I stand for being able to tell his story to get him. Like he told a story, it blew up and now he's in whatever business he's doing. So that's like the same path I'm on right now. You've gone through so many aspects of business and life and prison. There's so many things that you've done in five years that people won't do in their entire lifetime. Facts. So it's kind of hard to answer and it's also kind of cliche, but what lesson has have you learned from it? What's your biggest takeaway? What has changed you this the most? This motherfucker just stole my question. What? Who the fuck are you? Go ahead, ask it then. Finish well, it out. I think I'll ask it. What he said. <laughs> wow. That's fun. Go ahead. What's your lesson? Um. So my lesson or what I learned was just always being honest like in business i think that's like a really key component my downfall like i could have chased popularity all i wanted but i need to be honest so i think you really just need to be honest especially in those situations um and so that's like another takeaway from my story that i want to like tell kids about is like that danger of having unguided ambition like i had all the ambition in the world i could have been a success story but i wasn't and like i just feel like i needed some direction at that point i didn't have it so i think if my story shows anything to anyone like you can have dreams and you can have the ability to reach those dreams but it just needs to be directed in like a positive way and you have to have control over it and my story shows the dangers of what happens when that doesn't happen when you're when you're not honest um when you have a plan and the plan doesn't work and you go to do things to try to fix that plan so it's like a cautionary tale in that sense for a teenager right. because you have all these stories of the Mark Zuckerbergs, um, the Snapchat guys, whatever, the success stories, but you don't know the stories of like the failure aspects and what happens when it goes terribly wrong. And I think that's what my story stands for. And the you terribly know, like wrong you said, aspect. you never had malintent. You just didn't have guidance. Yep. Agreed. All right. Well, dude, thanks for coming on. That was fucking yeah, that was fun, an amazing man. story. I can't wait to see you on the big <laughs> screen.